geopolitics and empire is joined by ex-GCHQ spook turned dissident commentator Alex Thompson. He's featured weekly over at UK Column. Welcome to Geopolitics and Empire, Alex. Thank you very much, Hudvoy. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Since this is your first, eye, first time on, and I'm sure it's the first time some people are uh, seeing you or, or hearing you, could you just uh, briefly tell us a little bit about yourself? I grew up in a Christian uh, family in the UK, Scottish father and English mother, and I enjoyed a fairly elite education. Uh, I went to one of the best boarding schools in Britain, uh, rugby school. I've just written a piece on that for ukcolumn.org, actually, uh, about the a, a fairly dark theme, the suicide of my housemaster 30 years ago this month, and reflections on that. Uh, but it en enabled me as an experience uh, to get a, a different view of human nature than most people are able to, and a profound study of the classics. Uh, we were even given philosophy at school, a fairly rare opportunity in a British school. Uh, then I went off to Cambridge University studying obscure dead languages. The course title was Anglo-Saxon, Norse and Celtic. Uh, I then went off to the former Soviet Union, specifically the Republic of Georgia, for a year as a student missionary with the International Federation of Evangelical Students, IFES or IFES. The American listeners will know the term InterVarsity better. It's just the association of Christian unions across different campuses and countries. Uh, I came back from that and was recruited by GCHQ, which is Britain's sister agency to NSA. It's the Signals Intelligence Agency, so it does the electronic and communications eavesdropping. And I was there until 2009 when I came over to the Netherlands. Uh, people watching in video will see the uh, windmill backdrop behind me. I came over to marry a Dutch woman and I'm very happily settled here. Now, the thing that's brought me to notice is that since 2014, I've been a correspondent for UK Column News, uh, which is, uh, I think, fair to say Britain's premier, maybe even only full service uh, new media organization in that we have intellectual comment in the round. Uh, we have a news show uh, at lunchtime, British time, uh, three days a week. Uh, we're known for our sceptical coverage of COVID issues of the Ukraine war, and we tend to take the contrarian position to anything that the British government and its media establishment are saying and have done for many years. The backstory to that is that we're all a bunch of guys who were either in the British establishment or in the respectable professions. Uh, in one case, Mike Robinson, the City of London and at a major hedge fund. And we all saw that those we worked for uh, were amoral people who enjoyed death and mayhem while using fine sound sounding language. Uh, and so we, we know what uh, buttons to press in order to get the right analysis with a lot of networking. Uh, that's what's brought us to public attention. I think a certain degree of, if I did, dare say so myself, fearlessness, uh, that we actually call things out for what they are without, uh, you know, shooting from, um, uh, shooting at random, as it were, or from below the hip. We, we actually uh, take care to analyze from primary documents, especially government and official sources themselves, what is going on, whether it's health, uh, defense uh, or international relations. Yeah, and you know a, a number of the UK column is great. A number of uh, of the people that have appeared on your program have also appeared on Geopolitics and Empire. And I think UK column um, contributor Patrick Henningsen, he's my he's my virtual colleague at TNT uh, Radio. And I think I've even made an inadvertent appearance. I recall uh, a couple months back, my interview with Thierry Baudet blew up and you guys were mentioning how that was on the national Dutch media, uh, my, my interview with him. So that was I fun. remember that well, Hervoye. Yes. 
Yeah, they, uh, they're always doing this, and UK Column is getting a bit of the similar backlash this week. There's a guy called Dr. Matthew Sweet, who I think is a freelancer, but presents uh, one of the BBC's podcasts. Uh, he's, a, he's a culture critic and a Doctor Who specialist, believe it or not. But be, he very carefully tiptoeing around UK Column. He's throwing out rec- accusations of anti-Semitism left, right and centre. No pun intended with left, yeah. right and centre, but it is literally left, right and centre at anyone who talks about jury nullification. So close associates of UK Column have made a, a proper focus and, and study of that. And he's, he's taken against that very much because UK Column's closest equivalent in the licensed broadcast media, GB News, which has been through the ringers recently and lost uh, at least one of its main contributors. I fear more will probably follow the, of the main uh, real dissidents. Um, Sweet was having a pop at them. And, you know, in, in church circles, this would be called third degree separation. The kind of excommunication that's going on now now is, well, in Christian terms, it's I won't fellowship with you because you also fellowship with people who fellowship with heretics. Right. And this is Dr. Sweet's secular uh, strategy now. Uh, you can't have these people on GB News because they have guys on who also write for websites where Zionism is mentioned. A quick shout out to our sponsors, which you can locate via the sponsor page on geopoliticsandempire.com or whose links are included in every podcast description. I've tried privacy phones in the past, such as Silent Circle's Black Phone, which turned out to be a dud. The best and really only option so far is de-googling your phone. Now, you can do it yourself, but I've never had the time to figure that out and simply got an above phone. They sell de-googled phones that come with a suite of software. They also provide support and a monthly above privacy suite with many features such as a unique phone number, encryption, email, VPN, and so forth. If you're looking for a private phone, check out Above Phone. Make sure to click on the Above Phone link on geopoliticsandempire.com or via the podcast description so that we can enjoy a commission. Also, check out the Nomos Time Bank at nomos.net, which you can download in Spanish or English to your Apple or Google or de-Googled phone. Nomos allows people in your community to exchange services using time as a currency rather than fiat money. This will be one great way to survive in the coming algorithm ghetto. If you need health insurance, you can talk to my friend James Guzman of the Borderless Blog Podcast and Health Insurance. He offers free consultations. Simply schedule a time with him over at borderlesshealthinsurance.com. Finally, you can donate directly to Geopolitics and Empire, consult with me, the host, or become a member to join private monthly member Zoom calls where we shoot the breeze discussing world events. I, I was going to bring this up towards the end, but since you sort of touched on it and given your experience in GCHQ and, and, and the censorship, I just have a question where, you know, there's we, we know about 77th Brigade and NAFO or, or NATO information operations. And I've just noticed a strange trend where I'm openly anti-tyranny, whether it's communism or, or fascism or anything. And I frequently mention how my Croatian grandfather had been a Nazi, Croatian Nazi prisoner and I've been speaking out against fascism and um and uh I get my telegram channel of, of this podcast and, and other parts online flooded with these really weird, nasty, pro-Nazi, anti-Semitic, Jew-hating comments. And myself or my audience have don't care for that. And it, it seems to come in waves. So like yes. for a while it's quiet, and then you have these people starting these conversations between themselves. And it's I feel like it's the feds. Trying to 
uh, create this image to, to sort of associate us with this and then use that to take us down? I mean, do you have an insight on, on how that, that works? And There are a lot of real-life uh, low-level anti-Semitic trolls, right? And uh, people shouldn't misunderstand what I'm saying here because I've also been close for years with uh, the more thinking parts of ethno-nationalism in Britain, the Netherlands, and further afield. And we're not afraid of a debate on Jewish issues. Uh, we have content on ukcolumn.org that tackles that with a skeptic from within Judaism, uh, who's left Judaism as a religion, Gilad Atzmon, A-T-Z-M-O-N, if you want to look that up on ukcolumn.org using the search function. Um, and just yesterday, uh, a morgue cast with Morgoth's Review, uh, a British nationalist dissident, was also released in which he asked me about what he calls the Jewish question, and I answered in terms. But there is a lot of real-life, low-level mudslinging going on. Uh, Semi-literate people who think they know the secret to life, the universe, and everything because they see it's the Jews. right? And uh, they don't like the likes of David and David Scott and me at UK Column uh, because we can outdo them on Jewish sources, linguistically, historically, archaeologically, theologically, the, the works. They don't like that. So um, I've had that too on my Telegram channel. I've had people flinging turds at me. Uh, You're a coward. You won't name the Jew. And I, I re uh, repost their comment from the the comments under the posts to the main channel, and then I have a pop at them. And that tends to get them to leave fairly quickly because you've got the channel with you then. But not in a Dr. Matthew Sweet way of, oh, how ghastly anti-Semites everywhere under the bed. No, uh, actually asking them to debate the issues. Mm -hmm. uh, that you're, What you were getting at, Roy, of course, is, is there official organized trolling? And yes, there is. 77 Brigade, and we now have a whistleblower who's come forward to one of the braver licensed, uh, actually it's not an Ofcom license, but a, a, a free media uh, outfit, uh, Big Brother Watch, uh, has, uh, has has confirmed that it was an extremely slapdash operation with some jumped up mid-ranking officer going to Britain's cabinet office, which runs the government, the central ministry, and saying, uh, I can run troll farms and, uh, and Twitter uh, bots, uh, although they, they deny they use bots, but that, that kind of principle you know, and uh, uh, it's all completely unlawful. We have articles on UK column covering that. Uh, but 77 Brigade and 13 Signal Regiment of the British Army have been doing that in a very slapdash, lackadaisical way for a while. Uh, but they, my assessment is that it's not 77 Brigade type people who turn up saying it's the Jews. That would be distasteful incitement for the likes of them. Uh, I, that kind of thing has happened in the German intelligence services. They, you know, they're, they're as you know, fanatically keen on, on clamping down on anything they disingenuously call anti-Semitism or Holocaust denial, uh, yet they are the Western intelligence service par excellence, which do use agent provocateur and use money and uh, agents of influence to, to, to provoke their targets into being violent or, or uh, inciting. So that's, that does, does happen. But I'm afraid it's just that the, the underbelly of our free media culture, which is to blame, it's our own in-house trolls. Uh, in many cases, most cases, nine out of 10, I would say, uh, who are having a pop at the Jews without any knowledge. Yeah, I, I viewed it as as uh, both, and it's uh, unfortunate. And so, okay, we, we've gotten that uh, out of the way. And um, I, I wanted to get your big picture view. That's sort of what I try to do on geopolitics and empire, unless I bring in uh, an expert on a specific topic. But it's since it's your first time here, you know, uh, maybe to get your thoughts on geopolitics, globalism, and technocracy is... Uh, what I've been focusing on lately, because I feel like those are the most imminent threats. So, you know, we've got the conflict between East and the West, the push for world government, uh, especially via regionalism. 
Now, I mean, Elon Musk was talking about world government at the World Government Summit this week. Last week, Lula was talking about world government at the White House with Biden. Uh, so they're openly more and more discussing it. And uh, we've also got the advance of the biosecurity state or the algorithm ghetto, as I prefer to call it. Um, and then if there's anything apart from that, you know, that you're personally monitoring, monitoring you think that you think is important, uh, please bring it up. But maybe first on geopolitics, uh, the current situation between East and West, you know, we've got the Ukraine war in Europe, which some deem a World War Three situation. We've got UFOs over North America and the apparent advancing integration of, you know, the non-Western world and, and global South via BRICS and other platforms. So geopolitically, what, what, what's sort of your take? Are we in the World War III scenario? And, and what's, what, what's sort of the, the real game in your mind uh, when it comes to Ukraine, Russia, uh, US, NATO? I think it's evident that the Anglo-American establishment for a very long time has had an undue fixation on Ukraine. Uh, as the navel, the belly button of the uh, Eurasia world island, Eurasia Africa world island, uh, and a corridor from there really down to Israel, which is the actual uh, knuckle of the three continents where they meet. Uh, control of that corridor, or more particularly Ukraine itself, I think, is, is something that the British and Americans, particularly the British, have been fixated on in their statecraft for a long time. Um, whether it's and a kind of inexorable logic that has brought about the Western incitement to this war simply because of that. I think that would be too simplistic to posit. Uh, we're getting quite a lot of good intelligence from people within British and Western general uh, international bodies uh, on staff, writing uh, and advising ministers and decision makers and senior officers on policy. And those who obviously find their way to us are the dissidents and the unconvinced of the narrative. And they talk about the glazing over of the eyes of their colleagues and the fanatical marching in lockstep with the narrative. So what's brought us to this from the Western point of view and equally, if not more so from the continental Europeans, particularly given the Eastern European states from Croatia, uh, where your roots are from right up to Estonia and Finland, they're far more fanatical than even the Brits on this front. Uh, it's simply this uh, rolling eyes. Um, if you were typing it, you'd use italic font. Everybody knows that Russia wants to rule the world. That is the, the line that is spun. That, that is the sum and substance of how the Eastern Europeans have brought the Western European warhawks to this pitch. It's also the sum and substance of how the Western warhawks at, for example, my old employer, GCHQ, uh, managed to persuade their colleagues first and then the, the foreign ministries and the ultimately the governments and the, the media, that everyone knows that Russia is about to roll over to the English Channel and flatten everything. Uh, that's, that's where it's come from, this, this atavistic uh, tar tarring of the Russians with this brush, that they're subhuman. Uh, I don't consider that the current uh, leadership of the Kremlin is uh, innocuous, is innocent in all this at all. And David Scott, my colleague, uh, at UK Column has put it very well a couple of times that there's uh, that there's not uh, a better world solution in the offing, you know, coming from Russia or from China. Uh, they do have communist hangovers in the case of China, not even such a such a hangover. Uh, we can get hung up on the personality of Putin, whether he's virulently anti-communist or not. But whoever succeeds him is going to have to be at least as hard nosed, given the way that the Russia internally is and the way that the world is arranged. Uh, against and around Russia at the moment. So it's, it's the vectors are, are more general than that. There is, there is a, a, an inherent logic that's going to push Russia 
even though it's an ahistorical thing for Russia to do, uh, more deeply into the arms of China and Iran and other Eurasian allies. Historically, of course, the Russians have very much regarded themselves as a European people and had great scepticism towards other Asian land powers uh, because they themselves have been expanding eastwards and southwards over the centuries. But uh, I think that the, the blocks as they are currently drawn uh, are going to persist. Every analyst worth his salt is now trying to do a world map, drawing either two or three colours usually of the blocks. Sometimes they did regard there being a different block run by the US on the one hand and Europe on the other. Sometimes they split it as the Brits running a block and the Americans running a block. But almost all of them will say that there is a Russo-Chinese block and that that's not going anywhere. Some will call it an authoritarian block. Do you feel, I mean, one of my views is that one of the principal drivers of this conflict um, is the West um, attempts to break uh, and balkanize Russia. I mean, they're openly talking about it. Um, you know, what what are your other thoughts as to what's driving um, this? Yeah. Again, you have to look from east to west, not meaning Russia itself. But if you want to know where the illogical hatred of Russia is, as opposed to the healthy skepticism about, you know, a large a military powerful uh, neighbor, where does the irrational fear of Russia come. You always have to look to the eastern fringe countries first, the Baltic republics, Poland above all, and then Ukraine and the Caucasian republics as well. Poland has always been maybe not the most industrially developed in the whole of Central and Eastern Europe. That would be the Czechs uh, and the Hungarians. But Poland has always taken an intellectual lead in this. And in fact, they have a multi-century history of uh, enmity with the Russians. Uh, of course, they, they marched in in the time of, of trouble. Uh, in the early 17th century and took Moscow uh, and nearly snuffed Russia out uh, on the map at one point. But the Poles have got, certainly for a century now, this strong doctrine of breaking Russia up. Uh, they have uh, various names for this policy. One was one that's better known as Prometheanism. It was pushed very much during Marshal Pilsudski's uh, interwar government. And the Poles have remained very close to the French and British during and since the Second World War. Obviously, there was the communist into uh, interference with that but the poles in exile who then took over the government again have got this uh, and as far as i can see now the tussle between the government and the opposition in very much countries like poland and its neighbors uh the tussle between government and opposition and also between pro and anti-government media is a competition to see who can be more fanatically anti-russian who can pin more of the blame for the smolensk crash on the russians for example uh this this is something that we don't really take account of. More generally, it's been observed that, you know, in, in the time when uh, James Baker was US Secretary of State and was negotiating with Gorbachev and Shevardnadze uh, for the final settlement at the end of the, the Cold War, uh, it was uh, it was very much underestimated by the Americans in particular. Uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor has brought out this to light, and he knows the, the, the people who've, who were at the table at the time, that it was just assumed that because the Germans had said, ho-hum, we, ha we now have a more constrained territory and we have to be good boys, therefore the Poles and the Hungarians and the Romanians would behave likewise and would eschew and, and forswear what's, what was used, used to be known as irredentism or revan revanchism. But of course, these this belt of countries, the Croats being another example, I have to say, have not, have not given up. Uh, these these ambitions and and these countries have got you know they're they're rife with with uh, with 
folklore, but it goes right up to policymaking level of one day our time will come and it's in the service of mankind and to free the uh, the nations held prisoner in the Russian Empire. Uh, we're going to tally ho. The former uh, Polish foreign minister, Arin, Anna Fortiga, wrote in Politico uh, very recently, one of the mainstream Brussels titles saying we will have to break up Russia by forging links with the constituent entities and the uh, and inciting nationalism in the republics. So you know, that that it looks so daring to the kind of Anglo-American armchair generals who wish for financial and propaganda reasons to to put paid to to Russia, that they will take on face value what they're told, whether it's from the Estonian intelligence people saying, we know Ivan's mind better than you guys, or whether it's from the Georgians saying, let us fight a small war on your behalf, or the Ukrainians saying, let us fight a big war on your behalf. The Anglo-Americans, and I'm afraid to say now a lot of the continentals here in, in continental Europe, will swallow that hook, line and sinker. They will believe this stuff. What's you, you saw? I had recently on uh, Gilbert Doctorow and uh, everyone from Scott Ritter to um, and many of uh, other folks, Stephen Starr recently, and you know Gilbert was talking about how both sides are testing each other's red lines, and it seems like there is this slow move towards uh, escalation, all, all sorts of talk of you know hypersonics and tactical mini nukes and whatnot. Um, what sort of your assessment of whether this could escalate into uh, a third world war? Well, I've said before, I think a couple of times, uh, is it in the interests of any decision makers on either side now to de-escalate? Of course, there will be protestations, particularly from the Russian side, especially from the foreign ministry, which has some honorable people in it in, in Moscow, that we just want uh, a peaceful coexistence and a mutual respect of national sovereignty and non-interference uh, in internal affairs, uh, but the logic of the the system, the expansionist system on both sides, is that they are much more interested in a third world war or an a, a, an eternal kind of penumbra of the third world war that the grey zone, uh, the, the the British military strategists and think tanks openly sp speak about this. Now we cover it quite extensively on UK column. They're more interested in that than they are in a return to the Westphalian order and a Christian peace and amity uh, between nations. Uh, for one thing, particularly on the Western side, that would cause the economy to go bust much more quickly. There, there's permanent expansion and gaining of raw materials and collateral that's needed. And you have far better financial and, and economic experts than I, I'm able to, uh, to muster who are making that point. I'm also very interested in the thinking of, I would say he's a dissident even within the, 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 the truth movement or analytical side of the, the new media, Joel Skousen in the United States, whom I interviewed in long format once for Insight. Uh, our, our long-form one-to-one interview series. Uh, for those who don't know, he won't be everyone's cup of tea in, in our scene because he is sceptical about Russia uh, and whether Russia ever threw off communism. You know, he, t he takes the same line of analysis as Christopher Story, the, uh, the British analyst, uh, in that regard. And I interviewed Skousen at length about this, and it, it, it does make sense to me what he says, that there are uh, world domination-minded elements in Russia and China, very much as they were on both British and German sides in the run-up to both world wars. And they're just wondering now, uh, just as your last guest on Geopolitics and Empire uh, described with these testing of each other's red lines, how far can we push things and when will we, re we be ready for the deep uh, strategic depth we need, the, ca the capacity to uh, keep our population with us, keep the propaganda running, uh, keep our raw materials and industrial heavy, heavy industrial production going? Uh, have enough manpower to draw on. These things, these continued calculations are being made. 
Skousen has made a, a habit of, the, of, of this, and he's got a good background with the U.S. Marine Corps and survivalism to, to, uh, and good contact in Washington to calculate it. And if you philosophically accept his premises, then his conclusions, I would say, are fairly sound, which is that the Russo-Chinese bloc believes that it would be ready to take on the collective West, as they now call us, uh, by the latter half of this decade. And we're now hearing U.S. fairly senior officers openly um, uh, opining about that, aren't we? That sometime around 2025, there'll be a war with China. Not a set, an existential war, at least that's not what's being uh, said into thinking out loud. Probably a war over Taiwan. Uh, but Skousen, you know, goes the whole hog with this and says they would actually wish to take us over, not to obliterate us, quite the opposite, but to run our uh, intact cities and infrastructure for their own gain so that they are top dog in a new world order. Yeah, I, I've actually I, I've got Christopher Story's books. I read them like 15 years ago. Uh, they're in a box somewhere in my home in in Croatia. I was looking at them over last year when I was there. And yeah, I've had Jeff Nyquist on, who's also of I think Joel Skousen's, uh view. And I, I also entertain what what you just laid out. I I keep these things open as scenarios, and then I'll just pull the file depending on how we see things developing. Uh, you know, maybe we'll see start we'll start seeing things develop in the way Skosen has talked about. And I'm like, well, then you know he he's onto something, and uh, that sort of brings me then to the next topic of world control that we're talking about. You know, globalism, world government. As I mentioned, um, Lula last week was with Biden in the White House, openly saying we need world governance, we need global governance. That's just you know, there it's world government. And mm -hmm. he was saying that we need to force all nations to obey our world governance. And then uh, Elon Musk came out this week sort of poo-pooing this idea. But I've been noticing a trend last fall in September, October. Uh, my One of my three presidents, uh, AMLO, the Mexican president, and people can find the actual transcript where he actually said this. He said something to the tune of that the EU that... Um, well, for, I mean, first of all, just to mention, people can go back in 2016. Uh, AMLO tweeted an image with him and his buddy Jeremy Corbyn. Where, and on that tweet, they openly said they're working towards world government. Literally, he said that. And so in September, AMLO was saying that we want to copy the EU in North America and integrate Canada, USA, and Mexico. A few weeks later, we get ex-Ecuador President uh, Rafael Correa saying, we want to copy the EU in South America. Yeah. Lula is saying, let's create a common currency. Uh, you've got the Middle East Union, you know, maybe the Abraham Accords are the genesis of that. You've got the African Union already exists. And as you were alluding, I mean, talking about already, Eurasian Union is basically, it's like they're all copying the EU, which is the yes. blu blueprint. Although East Asia uh, and Southeast Asia, uh, and I know, I know they have ASEAN, but East Asia, north of that in particular, is going to be the hardest, isn't it, to regionalize. Getting the Chinese, the Japanese and Koreans to share a currency and have a, sh a shared international supranational bureaucracy is going to be pretty a pretty tall order yeah but and, and um what, what's sort of then your general view on this idea of world government how advanced we are uh and any other thoughts you have uh, on it again you have to posit the other way around don't you you have to ask in which capitals of non-negligible countries in the world is there a line of thinking and the training of the next generation of diplomats and think tank people to uh, endorse with robustness continued national sovereignty. Now, some people might put their hopes in the Eurasian bloc in this regard because they call for the rule of law through the UN, 
particularly the Security Council. Uh, but uh, they too are looking at alternative transnational currencies. They are, as we are unable to ignore anymore, very keen on digital ID, uh, as keen, if not more so, than some of the European countries. Uh, and that is not loose. That's not uh, separate from what we're discussing, because part of the idea of digital ID is that it's a return to medieval feudalism, that you might want to roam, but you're still, as it were, branded. That uh, Everyone knows who, whose property you are and where you pay taxes, to whom you pay taxes. So you've, you've got no liberty by moving over across the border, as medieval Europeans did to escape a tyrant in, in one area. Um, I don't see that there's any corner of the world with the possible exception of the, some of the more expressly Christian countries in sub-Saharan Africa, where there is a whole class of administrators of the current and, and in-training generation uh, that wish for a continuation of national sovereignty, unabated, uh, uncurtailed. Everywhere else, the whole of Latin America, from what I can see as a non-expert in Hispanic matters, is beset, not just by the perennial problem of statism and socialism that comes and goes in waves across Latin America, uh, but more particularly with this idea of forming a block, a block of solidarity. Uh, and the further east you go in Eurasia, the world island, in Alfred McKenna's terms, the pricklier people get, because, of course, Europe and Africa consist of several rather artificial states. There's no real sentiment of that towards the east of Asia. Even in multi-ethnic India, with, with hundreds of nationalities, there is this strong sense that uh, India is a state uh, and you can't break that up. Uh, and that, that persists as you go further east. So the, the egos there are going to be more difficult to bring into line. But in the end, I think uh, if, if you want a resistance to it, you're going to have to have a doctrine underpinning it. So it'll be the fight of our generation, philosophically, militarily, and in every other way, uh, to get our children and those who govern our children out of that mindset or prevent them from falling into it in the first place. But where is the uh, where, where is the alternative philosophy going to come from? The the return to the previous philosophy uh, in in the countries that pushed globalism the hardest, like Britain, by the Edwardian era over a hundred years ago. Now there was no serious game in town, other than ultimately that there would be world government. The only dis 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 uh, disagreement between these questionable gentlemen was whether Britain would rule the whole lot or only those parts of it that could be anglicised. That was uh, an issue that was in. Uh, revolving around Lord Lothian and the uh, uh, and the Round Table movement. Uh, other than that, uh, the West is is completely finished, as far as I can see, in in leading the way in in sovereignist thinking. So that there is going to be by hook or by crook world government unless we do something about it, and more particularly unless we, the free thinking people of the world, train the next generation in how to govern states. So for those listeners out there that always ask me. Where is a place that you can escape to? There you go, Africa, some parts of uh, Africa. And um, do, you, do you feel world government is at some point inevitable? People get what they deserve and as they also get what they pay for. Um, and people, it's been rec well recognized in statecraft and in religion for millennia uh, that people get the priests and the government that reflect their own values and what they are prepared to put up with. Uh, there are certain countries in the world where uh, people are so prepared to be abused that they're almost guilty of, of, of the crimes that are perpetrated against them. I won't name any now, but it strikes me on reading world history that that's the case. Others are perhaps too much the other way and will not even knuckle under and live peaceably under a, under a, a, a lawful government because they're, they're so individualistic. But the trend of the world 
the world thinking there is a global culture now formed by media and ultimately greed, selfish desires, the fulfillment of lusts of various kinds, which is now given free reign and license in, in various civilized parts of society around the world. That is causing this drift. People do not want to be responsible for their own freedoms. You, you have to tackle this at root, really. Like, you know, it, I, I, anyone can call themselves a geopolitical analyst, and I'm sure you and I can come up with examples uh, of, of the less than brilliant who, who just, you know, think that they can name a few statistics and call themselves a geopolitician. No, if, if you are taking the matter seriously, you have to begin with the nature of the people, the, uh, the, the terrain and the climate of a nation, its strategic interests, and also the evolution over time of a people. Also, collectively, uh, at world level over time, what people's primary desires are, where they sit in Maslow's pyramid of hierarchies. And in all of these ways, Hervoya, I'm afraid to say that the, the trend is towards world government uh, because people would, would rather, in the main, be told what to do and are content to live you know, the way they, that they are. Uh, I, I'm now hearing very strong arguments from people that, you know, despite the general collapse that's, that's prophesied or foretold in various ways, we will somehow have at least an industrial level, if not an electronic era, civilization coming out the other end, which interestingly enough is what all the sci-fi masters predict for millennia ahead as well, even if there's chaos and, may and, and mayhem in the middle. Because once people have tasted that and have that in their collective memory, they do not want to go back to autarky. You know, I very much admire small holdings uh, and self-sufficiency. I know in, in the Outer Hebrides of Scotland, we've still got crofters who are some of the most admirable people in the whole United Kingdom and some of the, uh, the most resistant to every kind of globalism and filth that comes our way. But if you didn't grow up in that system, uh, or if you don't have a very strong de personal determination, it will not be on your horizon as within the envelope of possible lifestyles. And that envelope is being pushed and compressed and also elongated and moved along towards living in a f de facto an urban environment, even if what, you know, if you live in what the in the West now is, is nowadays called a, a village, it, it's like being in a city uh, because of the, the way you're wired and the way you live inside and uh, don't produce your own food. Uh, now that's, that's, that's what people are going to think of as the possible way in which to live. And if you're within that mind frame, then you can very easily be nudged again and again. However many setbacks there are for globalism, they will, you will continually be nudged back to that point. Yeah, and I've noticed the same trend as you, uh, just having been in Europe and then talking to Canadians and Americans, even here in Mexico, most people, they I've had Americans openly tell me to my face that they just want like money and security and they prefer stronger government to, to freedom and and liberty and it's going as, as you say and i think it's been this mind control through yeah. the internet which is a weapon i think all of this stuff is this military weapons you know i Dar mm -hmm. facebook was darpa project that uh, google was <laughs> if you ask me seed you know seed, seed funded by uh, pentagon internet gps and so these are all weapons against us and i'm just curious on britain because Britain has left the EU where they, they would fit. And I saw, I think a year or two ago, Britain showed interest in wanting to join NAFTA or NAFTA 2.0 USMCA, uh, which is basically the North American Union. And I, I recall from reading, I think 1939, there was this uh, global, um, globalist plan called the Atlantic Union, which uh, was, they were talking about forming the supranational Atlantic Union, which would include Britain, Canada, and U.S. and so it's just kind of interesting to see Britain Britain leave EU now, and so where are they going to be placed? I mean, do you have any thoughts on the future of of Britain? 
Many, because of course that features in every episode of UK Column News. But to boil it down, I, what I would say is uh, we have a class of dreamers uh, running us, the think tanks and the politicians and the bureaucrats who uh, regard Britain, the island, as far too petty to circumscribe to do justice to their glorious, vainglorious ambitions. So Britain is a pawn for them. So uh, from the start, the whole of our governing class regardless of political party or profession, went overnight from our identity as steering Europe to our identity as the Commonwealth, or more particularly the Five Eyes. Um, now we see the AUKUS, AUKUS a Australia-UK-US alliance being talked up. The Australians may be about to re receive nuclear submarines. This, this goes back to the thinking around 1960, just before Britain's accession to what was then the EEC, when Britain openly called its uh, holdings and its interests in Southeast Asia and along the Indian Ocean coast up to Suez Canal called that the Fourth Empire. That that was why our um, you know the best uh, plane project that was aborted in by the globalists, the TSR two, was brought about so that Britain could do these hops right the way down the chain to Australia and and run an empire. Then there, some of the sharpest Rus uh, Russian analysts still think of Britain's particular sphere of interest uh, as being. But what we call east of Suez, the area from which the Royal Navy and the colonists, the colonialists famously withdrew and written a couple of years ago because of Brexit, said, well, we're back now. It's all faux. It's all fake because right? uh, we don't have the military muscle or the know-how or the engineering or the self-respect or the morals to do any of that empire building. But we like to be seen, our governing class like to be seen proje projecting themselves there. Uh, and likewise, we like to think that we can still steer the Americans uh, and claim lay claim to their vast resources above all their human resources uh, as part of our project. So that that's a, a sickness which we're going to have for an, a, a very long time, if not forever, in, in, in what remains of Britain as a, as a state, that its governing class is going to think, well, we're here to run the world or a substantial slice of it. And, and along with that goes, we are here to use Johnny Foreigner uh, to, to fight the latest enemy, often the Russians, but before that, of course, the Germans. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, this is just uh, fascinating for me. And maybe to jump to then the biosecurity uh, regime, uh, which more and more, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking at it as a, you know, COVID having been a military intelligence operation in conjunction with big pharma, uh, you know, with media, international institutions, which have overpowered national uh, governments. And I had some military guy actually tweet yesterday. He He dug up a tweet of mine. From February like second 2020 based on my interview with Dr. Francis Boyle discussing this stuff and saying geopolitics and empire was, was right way back then and my biggest fear is the whole cashless digital passport scheme and um which you know they'd established this social credit system in every single country where if you don't behave they literally just could shut you off from life. You couldn't buy food. You couldn't work. You couldn't travel. You couldn't do anything. You'd basically be left to starve to death in your home. And how do you see the whole COVID pandemic biosecurity uh, regime? Well, Britain, again, leads the way in nefariousness here, Favoya, because we don't we no longer have a public health agency. Uh, the, the UK is four countries for the purposes of health. Each uh, of the home nations has its own national health service uh, operating under its own brand. But uh, NHS England is no longer partnered with a public health England. You still have something called uh, uh, Health Scotland and so on. But 
Public Health England at the beginning of the COVID era merged with uh, various other bodies to form what they now call the UK Health Security Agency. An interview which has just gone up today by our nursing correspondent Debbie Evans with a knowledgeable lady called Cheryl Granger has an interesting moment. If you listen to this fresh, you'll find it on the homepage, otherwise you can search for it. Because uh, Cheryl Granger, with tongue-in-cheek, calls this UKHSA the NHS Security Office or something of that nature. The NHS Security Service is almost her words, not exactly, but that's the way things are going. Uh, the population starting again in Britain with its unique model of the NHS from 1948, uh, which is, you know, the government, the taxpayer being the health insurer and the only one available in, pra in practice. That model from the start regarded the population as the asset. You are the product. The clients are the pharmaceuticals and uh, the mind benders. You are the product, not the client. And as part of that model, you're going to want to know the vital statistics and particulars of everyone. That the sharp end of it is really through the campaigning of our nursing correspondent, Debbie Evans, and those like-minded with her, because when they ask the, the pressing questions, can I opt out of the NHS? Um, can I retrieve from you my NHS medical notes and will you destroy your own copy? No, no, ma'am, we will not. Those are owned by us forever and we will sell them to anyone we want. Right, that's that 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 makes it more brutally obvious what's going on than in most other countries where there is either well pre-Obamacare minimal government involvement in health insurance in the US or in the European or Latin American model a mixed so-called Bismarckian model where there's a layer between the health ministry and the uh, the public namely you have some choice in which of these these mutuals often employer-based or religious or philosophical, uh, is the one that you prefer that will hold your pot of money. In those systems, it's more disguised and it's taking longer to, to roll over. But Britain and I think Canada to some extent have got this going direct model where the population is the asset. So uh, biosecurity is key. I've never forgotten Catherine Austin Fitz's uh, insights into the parallels between late Roman Empire and Greek Empire slavery, uh, early modern Anglo-American slavery uh, of the Africans uh, and indeed many Irish, which is forgotten, and British dissidents went off to slave, slavery in Virginia. Um, and what's happening now? The the, the key, if, if you are such a, an amoral uh, psychopathic type that you can think this way, and uh, we, we're helped by the analysis of Catherine Austin Fitz and others to do that, then slavery is profitable as long as you can keep people on your reservation. You can do that once again in a global globalized society as long as you either physically or digitally prevent people from going off beyond where they can be seen because that person is the asset you stamp their body or in these days you take their biometric their dna or their iris or whatever uh, in order to say well you might end up in in tahiti uh, but you're still mine right and, and the only way out at that point is to say i'm not going to participate in this system now i'm not a radical purist in this regard. Uh, I knew even when I moved here to the Netherlands in 2009 that even then they had digital identity uh, because the Dutch are very naive and trusting in this regard and want an easy life. So uh, together with a few vaguely Teutonic countries, they even at that stage were saying, we have digital ID. It's called DigiD or DigiD in Dutch. They don't make any bones about it. And it's only for filing your tax returns for convenience at this stage. But it's, as far as I know, mandatory for the, the nice-to-haves. So every teenager I was talking to one in our church last night who's just going for her scooter license. Um, and the only way to get one is to apply for one of these DigiDs. You're just a new adult. And the first thing you do is say, dear government, please take my digital identity so that I can do my driving test. 
right? So you need massive resolve at that stage in life to say no, uh, because that means you're you're going to be requiring public transport or or paid uh, uh, cab hires uh, for the rest of your life for transport. So that's that's the way the Dutch have have arranged it. I can just about live with that, because that's not a daily use. But you have to draw a line in the sand, as many people in the movement are saying now, that if you are required to use digital identity to pay for things, then you say, and this will only work if you mean it, if you've searched through your soul and and, uh, come to this conclusion, that you say to those requiring that of you, no, I'm prepared to to starve to death, but I'm not prepared to get your digital identity. right? Because at critical mass, uh, most of us who say that will not actually starve to death, if any. We'll very quickly find ways to uh, to survive and thrive outside that system. Yeah, that brings me to another question that we often broach on the podcast in in this coming algorithm ghetto: how to s- survive. And you know, people talk about building parallel structures, parallel societies, parallel economies. Do you feel like this is what's going to happen? That we're just going to have two worlds uh, existing, and those of us that say no to that will be surviving in a parallel structure yes. or is that yes nice? and it, we we have precedent for this uh particularly i think in the early centuries of the christian church there was the the then technological equivalent of digital identity uh which is what's described in uh pr- prophetic terms as the mark of the beast in revelation in that there was a long time where uh, you know you had to use what christians regarded as idolatrous money in order to buy things. And there were a number of people who were not prepared on principle uh, to use that money. And instead of sitting and piously praying until they wasted away, uh, they engaged in, and people might be shocked to hear me describe it this bluntly, but it's black marketeering in order to survive and thrive. Dr. Phil Kaiser, that's K-A-Y-S-E-R over in Omaha, Nebraska, is one of the foremost Christian preachers on this theme. He's done a very long service. It's a sermon series on revelation that talks about this. uh, Phil Kaiser is easily found. He's got his own website and he's, he's done chapter and verse on this, that there were centuries of the late Roman Empire where not just Christians, Christians as, as either, as far as I'm concerned, but as far as I'm aware, but dissidents of all stripes said, well, we, we are going to live more simply this way. And we're going to, some of us will fall, we'll, we'll be imprisoned or, or tortured or killed, but we are going to survive as a mass this way because the alternative is is to have our souls stolen from us at the point of sale all of these systems revolve around point of sale right everything else is is out of question so if you can find a way of bartering and i'm not saying only you need to find only one of these but a combination according to time place circumstance uh, anything that avoids point of sale being the official uh you know the, the mainstream point of sale will obviate uh, this requirement I, 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 rem- I recall doing some research, um, you know, during the whole pandemic with these COVID passes. And then uh, I have right behind me, I bought from an Italian antique dealer on eBay for 10 bucks, this 1938 Nazi uh, sort of health pass, which uh, they used in Nazi Germany to prove your biological purity, your 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 uh, Aryanism. And then separately, you have the actual Nazi health pass. And then I, I, just as you're saying, I was shocked to discover in the Roman times they also had some sort of certificate kind of like this where uh, it was a certificate, I guess, Romans were required to have where you sacrificed, you were forced to sacrifice an animal to the pagan gods. Yeah. Uh, and if you didn't have the certificate, you have to, I don't know, be fined or jailed or killed. And many Christians at the time got these fake uh, pagan certificates or, or did what, what you were 
talking about. And then I lost the bookmark, but I, I had the actual primary source from a thousand years ago in the Middle Ages during the Holy, Holy Roman Empire and the Catholic Church, which had a, si a similar, like all throughout this time, there, ha there has existed this sort of certificate controlled mark of the beast system. And in the Holy Roman Empire, they actually said, if you don't ideologically submit to the Holy Roman Empire, you know, spiritually, spiritually philosophically, morally, you won't be able to buy or sell. Like you also had to have a certificate. This goes back way, way, way back to Bronze Age tyrannies, Ravoya. You had to worship your petty local king and his overlord, great king, as God on earth. You know, that that's, that goes to, as far back, if you take the conventional view of archaeology to to urbanization, you know, to uh, ultimately to what the anthropologists would call the period of speciation. You know, that uh, that's, uh, as soon as we start to live together, uh, the uh, you know, top dog in local society demands that you worship him. And praise him for his munificence. They've always been people who've, who've skirted around that, but that—that's the way that human societies are organised. And so, you know, self-sufficiency, time and again in history, in many societies, has been uh, at the preserve of those who have struck out physically or at least intellectually from that, and said, "We are not prepared to." Since we've delved uh, a bit into the spiritual, and I've had in the past uh, guests like Pastor, Canadian Pastor Arthur Pawlowski, and. Patrick Woods of Technocracy, who are also Christians, and and they both were of the same opinion that uh, you know just regarding uh, prophecy. You know, there's this. I think at some point history ends, um, but I kind of view of all these things that we're talking about, like they progress over time and get worse and worse. Um, and you know, Palowski and, and Pat Wood were saying that it's like successive waves. Like World War II was one moment where there was this attempt to take over the planet. It failed for whatever reason, maybe divine intervention or people resisting this evil. And then we had decades of freedom and prosperity. And it seems like it's back again uh, in, in more force. And then the question is whether it'll establish itself now or we'll throw it off and then we'll have more, you know, decades of freedom and prosperity. How do, how do you sort of view spiritually or prophetically the times that we're in? The concept of time in the Bible, which is something I often teach when I teach biblical languages to people of various nationalities as well, is, is very important. We often hear this uh, tussle uh, in the postmodern era between those who say that time as a linear concept is Eurocentric and old hat, and we should go back to this cyclical view of time, right? It's been that what's been before will come again. Such sentiments are mentioned in the Bible as well by Solomon in the in Ecclesiastes. But he doesn't mean to say that uh, it's some kind of eternal yuga cycle, as in Hinduism. Um, the best uh, summary of, of uh, I could give of what the biblical view of time and prophecy is, is that you're a downward spiral. It's the opposite of climbing a mountain. So you, you keep seeing the same thing from a different vantage point. Uh, in Revelation, you could say that you're climbing a mountain, coming up higher. And every time you do a circuit, you have the same view of the same point that came earlier in the book, but from a higher angle. But the, the time time is uh, on earth in, in among uh, among sinful man is is the opposite of that. It's a downward spiral. It comes to a, a point at rock bottom when God cuts cuts it off with the return of Christ. But you will see the same things coming again and again, only worse, you know, baser than ever before. The uh, delay between something being invented and it being used for wickedness rather than for for good is now extremely short. That's I think the underlying. Uh, reality that we, we face so that we are always going to have more uh, intense tyrannies than before that want to get into your biometric data, into your head, read your mind. They're talking about it. You know, it's not conspiracy theory anymore. Um, but the question is, you know, when, when does God intervene? Well, 
Christ has a rhetorical question, doesn't he, at the end of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. But when the Son of Man comes, uh, returns, will he find faith on the earth? He doesn't say yes or no. He leaves it as a challenging question. The Apostle Paul says that evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving themselves and being deceived. That, I think, is my proof text in the New Testament that you are going to see uh, repeats of the same thing going on and on. That's a great way uh, that, that you put it, and I can't. I, I agree with uh, what you said, and uh, just a, a, a new way of uh, thinking for me. And I'll be digging into that. And we, we've covered a lot. I think people are going to like this uh, talk. Is there, um, you know, w- w- any thoughts on w- what we do? Uh, w- given everything that we sort of covered, war, the spiritual aspect, the technological tyranny. Um, how how do we approach this as as people from around the world you know my view is just to always resist evil and tyranny it's our it's our duty um and then you know we talked about parallel societies you know any other thoughts on what do we do as a people to to resist simplify and practice simplify and practice those two verbs cover it simplify your life as much as possible even getting rid of clutter and i don't mean things that could help you survive in tough times but uh clutter that t- t- takes up your time and attention and space uh and the same emotionally uh live the, the simplest you can and enjoy your meals your time with people much more than ever before you will recharge far more deeply that way you will sleep better and practice practice saying no you know one of the many definitions we give of uk column is that it's uh it helps people gives them the ammunition to say no but you know we we are the Haynes manual or one of the Haynes manuals of saying no but that's no good on its own you also need to be getting on the shooting range metaphorically speaking i hasten to add and getting in the hours uh building up the mileage of saying no so you start small and locally by saying no to petty tyranny uh you do so as calmly as you can with an uncluttered mind uh and you will find like-minded people along the way you know and uh it's just just by saying i don't go along with this uh, you get such peace of mind uh, and you, you meet soulmates that way. But that's all the preparation. Well, that's not all the preparation you need to do. Some people, depending on their temperament, will feel very convicted that they should start a small holding and store food. Who am I to gainsay them? It's not my way. Uh, I think there's at the very least uh, enough evidence in the New Testament that biblical Christians don't have to be that way, that they can also say, I'll be carrying on with my ministries as before until the Lord sees fit to take me. That's equally valid. But the common denominator between those two or three liberty-loving approaches is that you do practice saying no. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, uh, minimalism, you know, something that I try to practice and I've told people a form of minimalism and there's just movement today, but I always just intuitively viewed uh, the, the biblical Christian way as they were minimalist. They didn't have much and uh, I, I was... like they're in the New Testament, my brethren, having to have not many of these world's goods. Yeah, and it's less, you know, mentally less things to to uh, think about, and so um, yeah. Any final thoughts for us? Well, I think we've we've said it all really for for an introductory uh, podcast. It does come to mind that if you or anyone else among the listeners would like to check out Dr. Phil Kaiser, I do rate rate him very highly on a number of fronts uh, for his insights on 
Revelation, other parts of the Bible, for his work in uh, forging spiritual links between East and West. He's been in St. Petersburg very often with with uh, like-minded people. Uh, if I'm not wrong, his website is Kaiser, that's K-A-Y-S-E-R, KaiserCommentary.com. You'll find a wealth of material there. He's also on SermonAudio.com. No, just, just just comes to mind because you personally said that you were interested in looking at this further. I'm not you know, here to, to bring in you know, dissension between people on their various schools of prophecy and when the millennium occurs and so on, but at least start with a historic starting point of how this church historically understood these matters and how they got through the worst of the struggle in a previous iteration of it. Yeah, I'm going to check that out. And where are the best places to find you uh, on the internet? UKcolumn.org, and I run a Telegram channel in my own right, which is called Eastern Approaches. That's t.me slash East app. I'll include all of those links uh, in the description. I, I do follow your uh, telegram, and it's it's been great uh, having you on uh, the program. Uh, thank you for being uh, with me, Alex. A pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes. Facebook restricts our page. Reddit and Twitter take down posts. And after the Associated Press mentioned Geopolitics and Empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our Pro account. The best free way to help Geopolitics and Empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.